in this kind of culture, uh, it's harder to find examples of who you want to be like, and especially morally who you want to be like. Mm. The consumer culture. Mm. And um, I, I think one of the things that people in the, the adolescent range, all through young adults, have struggled terribly with is, do I matter? And is there any way of mm-hmm. being a grown-up where you can matter, where, the, where, where you can do something valuable for your community? So I have the great honor and privilege of speaking with Dr. Nancy McWilliams today. She is a part of the American Board of Professional Psychology. She teaches in the Graduate School of Applied and Professional Psychology at Rutgers, the State of University of New Jersey, and has a private practice in Lambertville, New Jersey. She is author of Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, Second Edition, Psychoanalytic Case Formulation, Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy, and most recently, Psychoanalytic Supervision, which is available now for pre-order on Amazon. Uh, I'll include a link in the description and you can go there whenever you um, feel. She is the also a co-editor of Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual, the second edition. She is a past president of the Society for Psychoanalysis and Psychoanalytic Psychology, Division 39 of the American Psychological Association and is on the editorial board of Psychoanalytic Psychology. A graduate of the National Psychological Association for Psychoanalysis, Dr. McWilliams is also affiliated with the Center for Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis of New Jersey and serves on the board of trustees of the Austin Riggs Center in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. She is a recipient of many honors and awards, and she she is an honorary member of the American Psychoanalytic Association the Moscow Psychoanalytic Association, the Institute for Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy of Turin, and the Warsaw Scientific Association for Psychodynamic Psychotherapy. Her writings have been translated into 20 languages. Is it 20? More than that? Something like that. It's 20, yeah. less than that, I know. <laughs> uh, so Dr. McWilliams, it is so great to see you again. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. Um, so. I have you here and you, as I mentioned, you just recently wrote about psychoanalytic supervision. Um, it, uh, it doesn't necessarily pertain only to psychoanalytic supervision, but supervision in psychology programs in general. Um, can you tell us about why this topic and what is it that you wanted to address with this new book of yours? Well, uh, partly I was responding to the fact that um, my professional association, the American Psychological Association, is uh, putting some pressure on training programs to offer courses in supervision. And that wasn't true when I went through training. Uh, my contemporaries all learned to supervise for better or worse by identification with people who supervised us. And it occurred to me that there, there wasn't a book from a psychoanalytic perspective. Hmm. Um, about supervision that was as inclusive as I wanted to be. There were some good books about that. Mm-hmm. Um, Joan Sarnat, for example, wrote a very good book about that. Um, but I wanted to include individual supervision, group supervision, uh, supervision under conditions where you have the 
legal responsibility versus consultation where you don't? What are some of those differences? I wanted to talk some about um, some dyads that can cause either difficulty or blind spots. Hmm. Um, when the therapist has one sort of personal style and the, uh, the supervisor has a different one, like for example, it can be a big problem if you have a somewhat histrionic personality and therefore you tend to defer to authority and have trouble finding your own voice. Hmm. If you have a somewhat narcissistic supervisor who needs to show you how smart he is, uh-huh. Or she is, <laughs> happens to. Um, although I'm more familiar with the more hysterical female trainee and the know-it-all <laughs> male trainer. Um, that's a bad combination because the student mm. then learns to comply but not to find her own voice. Mm. So I wanted a chapter on that, and that chapter includes considerations of difference between the supervisor and the supervisee um, of race, of gender, of um, various kinds of cultural identification, spiritual orientation, age, uh, disability or ability, and, and many other factors. Um, so there were there was a, a, a lot of things that I thought hadn't been written about um, mm. a lot of depth yet. Also, my friend Molly Forst, uh, who herself has written an excellent book on uh, a grammar of power in psychotherapy, um, started urging me to write a book on supervision. I had supervised her for a long time, and she said, you've probably done it longer than most people I know <laughs> in more parts of the world than anybody I know. And I started thinking, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I supervised uh, people in China and South Africa and Scandinavia and South wow. America and Greece and Italy and Spain and um, I, Korea. It's, it, it, it's very interesting to hear, uh, you know, in some ways people all over the world are very similar and in some ways different cultures have very specific kinds of problems. I've taught in Iran, for example, in Turkey. Um, anyway, I could go into that, but it occurred to me yeah, and in my supervision groups, there are people in a whole lot of different roles. You know, they may work with uh, people with substance use disorders, or they may work in a jail, or they may work with children. Or so I'm kind of a generalist, and I've I've seen a lot by this time, and it seemed like a natural progression for me hmm. to write this. Yeah. I also felt somewhat critical of the way some supervision is taught, as if it's a very I mean, is if you can systematically build mm. skills and yeah. competencies. In, in the book, I think it's in the intro, you, you mentioned briefly how um, when you were going through supervision, you had a client and you did something that was very beneficial and helpful for the client, but your supervisor was upset that the way that you did it wasn't in a particular like orthodox type of way. Do you remember writing that? Yeah. Can you explain that kind of a little bit? I don't remember the exact incident I'm, I'm mm. referring to there, but there are supervisors that want to teach you a technique mm. uh, rather than the sensibility behind any technical choice that you, mm. you make. Uh-huh. And, and the idea of what you're trying to accomplish with the person. One of the chapters in the book is about 
how do how do we in the psychoanalytic community and, and to a great extent the humanistic and CBT practitioner communities actually judge change? It's not by temporary symptom reduction, hmm. which is one thing you might have to measure if you're a researcher trying to do short-term work to show whether a particular technique helps with a particular DSM disorder. Uh-huh. But if you're, you know, if you're treating <laughs> real people who tend to have very complex kinds of problems uh, in open-ended therapies, you're thinking much more in terms of things like, um, am I increasing this person's attachment security, mm-hmm. their basic trust? Mm-hmm. Um, am I helping them find a sense of agency? Am I helping them manage their affective reactions and tolerate a whole range of affects? Am I helping them have more realistic and reliable self-esteem mm-hmm. um, to, to understand the separate subjectivities of other people, to have more flexible and mature defenses, to be able to accept what can't be changed mm-hmm. and grieve and move on instead of getting stuck and complaining. Yeah. Um, to have a sense of vitality, to love and to work and to play. So um, You call those the psychological vital signs, right? Yes, I I do. And I I got that um, term from my friend Terry Gordon, uh, who's one of my own consultants. uh, Because one of my arguments in the book is we need supervision lifelong. Hmm. And, um, And when I have a problem with a patient, he's one of the people I go to. Yeah, that, so, uh, I don't know where to start, but one of, one of the stories that you tell in the book um, that really stood out to me and showed me how important lifelong supervision is, is you were talking about, you had a, I think, a supervisee of yours, and he had a client that had some antisocial kind of manipulating tendencies, and then he fell for like her charms kind of way but mm-hmm. he didn't see it and he brought it up to you into a supervision group yeah. and everybody else pointed out to him and how right do you remember that story yeah I yeah it happened several times actually mm. so yeah and for him it took him bringing it up to other people for him to even know that he was not seeing clearly and if you have a private practice let's say and you're seeing clients weekly and like, and you might not even know to consult about that type of a case because to you, there's nothing wrong, right? So that was just, that kind of blew my mind. And I was thinking of how important it is to have supervision regularly and maybe even to um, bring up cases that you think that is going fine just to see if your blind spots. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's probably one reason that the consultation group that I do for practitioners in the community have a real, uh, they, they really have legs in terms of people mm. staying in them for a long period of time because uh, after a while, people know what they're doing and you get fewer presentations where somebody says, I don't know what I'm doing with this client. And instead they're saying, I think I'm doing okay, but yeah, I'd really like to get a few other pairs of eyes on this. And, you know, we alternate who presents, and you always get uh, a, a new metaphor, a new angle of vision. It, it enriches you to mm. have consultation with colleagues. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and so when you open, when you open the book, let me find, I wrote down the quote. Yeah. So this is with chapter one. Um, you're talking about as a supervisor, what it is to the, the task that you're supposed to teach your, your supervisee, right? Your mentor to mentee. And, um, it's that you, so you quote, from their mentors, therapists need to learn how to weather storms of negative feeling coming directly at them from miserable people, how to keep their self-esteem when being relentlessly devalued, how to recognize and deal with the grain of truth in patients' complaints about them, how to handle the traumatic internal responses to searing accounts of trauma, how to bear ugly and personally alien feelings in themselves, how to tolerate uncertainty, how to set boundaries with people who feel wounded by reasonable limits, how to maintain an unnatural level of secret keeping, mm -hmm. how to find hope when clients fill the office with their despair, how to manage anxieties that a patient may die by suicide and other emotionally taxing lessons. And I read this and I just thought, wow, like what an, what an impossible task to teach a mentee, right? Especially, <laughs> especially um, for us in like a, I'm in a graduate program and so my first year of clinicals, I had a supervisor for that year only. So to try to teach those things within a year's time too. Um, I mean, it's, it's ever learning, but for you having a, a supervisee and your first year together and you you sit down and you realize that you have to try and help this person deal with all of those things that were listed. What, what is that like for you? Well, you just take it as, Step at a time, like <laughs> else, you know, if you're teaching somebody how to um, play the piano, they don't start playing a symphony uh, mm -hmm. at the very beginning, or, you know, yeah. a, a, a magnificent piece. Um, and you just take things as they come up. I, I, I think the most important thing for supervisors at any level is to be sure that your supervisee feels safe enough to tell you the whole truth about what they're doing and feeling in the session. Mm. Because um, the empirical literature shows that most supervisees keep some stuff from the supervisor, and often for good reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's very interesting. They've done some studies in um, Oslo, Norway, where they, they found that the supervisees had learned that some of their supervisors were too um, retaliatory if they mm -hmm. disagreed with them or if they told them they'd done something that the supervisor disagreed with. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems to me the first thing we have to do, since we, we don't, uh, you know, in family therapy, you do to some extent, but in psychodynamic and most one-on-one -on -one therapy, there's not a, a, a prototype for watching the session. That may be something that should be changed at some point. Um, at our program at Rutgers, we have students videotape the first session hmm. and then watch it with their supervisors, which is pretty close. But even there, you know, you can decide what part of the video you show and <laughs> you don't show. And, uh, so the first concern is to just make the person safe hmm. and ask them what they feel they need to know. Where, where are they finding themselves 
in trouble. By the time they go into supervision, they know something about various theories behind therapeutic practice. And um, they've had some role playing and other kinds of exposure to how to think about helping people. And when they sit down with real human beings who are expecting them to be the, the therapist, mm-hmm. what comes up for them? What do they want help with? They're, they're very good judges of where they need to go, I think. Mm. Yeah. And so um, you, you were kind of talking earlier about the different personality styles that become not become that our supervisors and supervisees and you wrote a whole chapter on kind of the the different personality styles like maybe um working with depressive supervisees or working with narcissistic supervisees and you go through it um first i wanted to point out you you seem to have a very fond uh, maybe appreciation for uh schizoid personality types and you say that you've uh, have a lot of deep, long-lasting impressions from other therapists or mentors that claim to be schizoid personality type. Like I think Arthur Robbins is one of them. Is that correct? He used to self-diagnose as schizoid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, so you you mentioned that and how uh, depressive personality characteristics, uh, people with depressive personalities, they're a delight because they're usually willing to learn and. They don't give a whole lot of pushback, but they're also very, they incorporate and, um, and then you said narcissistic supervisees are kind of the most difficult to work with. Um, uh, probably psychopathic even more, although if you follow mm-hmm. Kernberg's way of thinking about psychopathy and antisocial personality, that's just an extreme version of uh, a narcissistic problem. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's not what, that those other, uh, kinds of psychologies that I like to work with <laughs> don't have any, you know, blind spots or difficulties. And you're right. I love schizoid people. Uh, I find them uh, people of a lot of depth and sensitivity and they kind of get psychotherapy in my experience, but they also have trouble with some kinds of patients. Hmm. Um, you know, they, they tend to think of people with more hysterical psychologies and post-traumatic psychology sometimes as um, phony, as lying. Mm. Uh, in other words, certain kinds of defenses, they, mm. they don't understand as automatic defenses uh, because they wouldn't be in them. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Your main defense <laughs> is just withdrawal into your mind or away from people. Mm-hmm. You don't have to use any distorting defenses. So mm-hmm. I mean, they have to be helped in that area. Um, depressive therapists, and by the way, I'm using those terms not as personality disorders, just personality styles, because everybody's got dynamics. Um, depressive people, um, they tend to have a lot of trouble setting boundaries and saying, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm not willing to see you after such and such a time. And the problem with that is uh, they're trying so hard to be good that that the patient doesn't have the experience of identifying with somebody who has ordinary self-care. Mm. <laughs> so I tend to have to help my more depressive people with setting limits. So you, you have the right to insist that a patient wears a mask if that's what makes you comfortable. You have a right to 
um, not have them call you at all hours of the night. Uh, if they're in private practice, you have a right to have a fee below which you won't go, even if you completely understand why they really want you to lower it more than that. Um, so those, those nice, <laughs> more collaborative kinds <laughs> of people are, they, they have problems too. With, my problem with them, people with significant narcissistic issues, and all of us have them to some degree, and all of us are vulnerable uh -huh. um, in our self-esteem. But if, if you have really strong narcissistic needs to be admired, there's going to come a point in supervision where no matter how supportive the supervisor has been, he or she is going to have to um, disagree with you about something you've done or suggest something different or from the perspective better that you could have done. And if that's too wounding and you get defensive, um, it's very hard to learn. Hmm. So you, it, 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 that's yeah. the problem with that group. So, uh, I'm going to come back to that, but you, you did briefly mention, you said um, early on in your training, you felt emotionally violated by a group leader um you shared an experience and then but because of however the person responded you said it delayed your progress and trusting others with your innermost thoughts so that's a perfect example right yes yeah um do you remember what what it was that happened or what it was that was felt emotionally violating well i was in a group uh -huh. and uh, i was in analysis at the time and i was very aware of some of my less um positive qualities and some of my own internal conflicts mm. and um the it was the first meeting of a group and the leader went around and asked people to, to tell as honestly as possible how they were feeling internally mm. and i um decided i i would take that risk and i just i described a conflict between um wanting to, to be loved and wanting to compete with people and being seen as the best. Mm. And um, he immediately said uh, something like, are, are you aware that that's very neurotic? Wow. And, uh, that, that those things are mutually exclusive and that's not reasonable to expect that from a group like this. Wow. And I thought, all right, that's the last time I take your invitation. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I closed down for a while with, in several similar situations. Mm, man. Yeah. Um, so, so when you're talking, uh, you gave a lot of stories about supervisors, maybe with supervisees, maybe similarly, a hysterical supervisee with a narcissistic supervisor. And maybe they open up about something or they offer, maybe they try to um, offer what they think might be good but then the narcissistic, the narcissistic supervisor either shuts it down or maybe is condescending toward them. And then how are they going to find their voice moving forward and, as, and forming their professional identity as like a psychoanalytic therapist, right? Right. And yeah. I think that probably happens in any kind of supervision, not just psychoanalytic. If you feel that your supervisor has to be right, has to know more than you hmm. uh, about everything. Uh-huh. How are you going to discover that you are good enough 
your your intuition is good, your knowledge is good, your training is good. <laughs> how do you how do you learn that? You know, maybe I mean I think the best way to learn is is for a supervisor to sometimes say, Wow, I wouldn't have thought of that. I think that's better than what I would have told you to do. Hmm. Uh-huh. Take a very humble approach as a supervisor. Yeah. I mean yeah. it's not 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 like falsely humble, but just uh-huh. that most people who've gone through or are in training programs to be therapists are, are very highly motivated, smart, sensitive people who are doing the best that they can. Yeah. I guess I do want to say that I think there is um, a narcissistic problem for supervisors mm. in general, whether or not they have any profound narcissistic dynamics in their personality. Uh-huh. And that's that they want to feel like they've given something to the supervisee. Mm. <laughs> and that can run into a kind of um, conflict when, this, when what the supervisee needs mm is to feel like I was good enough as is. Like, I'm a, I'm a good enough basic therapist. Uh-huh. If the supervisor feels like, all right, they were great, but I have to be adding something here. I have mm. to be giving them something new. I have to be moving them along in the competencies. Uh-huh. Then they don't have the experience of realizing, you know, they're growing as a profession. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, so I, what I wanted to bring it back to is you mentioned that depressive personality types, um, you know, they have maybe they suffer from too much empathy and they may be, um, let's see, like they might find it hard to draw boundaries. And uh, like you said, you know, if, if they're not comfortable with you wearing a mask, then they might find it hard to tell you that they're not comfortable with it. And um it reminds me kind of do like of assertiveness training. And so as a, as a supervisor, um, and, and maybe you mentioned you know, the lines between treating and teaching your supervisees, mm-hmm. but do you do much maybe super like a assertiveness training with a supervisee who is having a difficult time with maybe, maybe conflict or engagement that is necessary or meaningful? Um, I guess what I do, I wouldn't call assertiveness training because that's a fairly specific kind of um, approach, but mm. I would often role play with them Okay. Um, and say, why don't, why don't you be the client and um, you put me through what the client's putting you through and let me see if I can come up with mm. a way to respond to this. Uh-huh. And that just models something different and might give them the experience of, oh, you know, you, you could just assert yourself in certain, Mm. you you could maybe tease the patient and if the patient's feelings got hurt, then you could apologize. It's not like you have to walk on eggs with everybody. Uh Um, You can be more assertive. That makes sense. Uh, You mentioned one of your chapters is about group supervision. Um, and here at my university, our group supervision is it's a it's like a group consultation and presentation class. So you might have one or two students that day present and then um, but they usually present the case all the way through like this is my client. This is how I'm going to treat them. This is the prognosis. And then 
people might ask questions about the case or ask if you've thought of this or why did you choose this modality, right? Um, is that similar to maybe where Rutgers, what groups revision looks like there or what does it look like for your students at Rutgers? Um, well, I have a pretty narrow um, kind of uh, situation at Rutgers because I used to you know, teach all the students some of the you know, substance of you know, psychoanalytic theory or personality or um, psychoanalytic therapy and the theory behind it. Hmm. And I, I, you know, I'm still connected with Rutgers, but I'm semi-retired, which means okay. I teach just one course, and it's the supervision group for advanced students. Okay. They're all students that know that they are psychodynamically oriented or really want to learn more about psychodynamics. So they, um, you know, they come in and they present a, an issue and mm -hmm. what they want help with. Mm -hmm. um, and then they talk for quite a while and it's more free form than what you described. I, I, I actually don't like it when they've got the patient tied up with a bow. I'd like mm -hmm. to hear, you know, what they're feeling and what's the issue that they need help with and mm -hmm. uh, get more of a sense of where they're struggling. Sometimes they actually want to present about um, something else like a, something that happened in the department that everybody's having feelings about and nobody feels safe to tell the dean about or you know, uh -huh. how do we handle this or they have a they're in an uh, externship where they're being badly treated i had an african-american um student last year who was doing phone therapy with uh, some very macho groups um uh, by you know, by profession. And she would often be on the phone with guys who didn't know she was black and who would make racist comments. Mm. And she was just having a hell of a time mm. tolerating that. Yeah. Uh, and she brought that up to the group. You know, what, what can I do? And mm. I don't want to interfere with their process, but this is burdensome and yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a traumatic situation that I'm in. And, uh, so they, they use each other as problem solvers more okay. than uh, what you're describing sounds a little bit more formalized, learning how to present a case. Mm. Kind of thing. Um, the, the students I have now are a little past that part of their training. Mm. Okay. That sounds, I really liked how you mentioned that sometimes in groups of revision, you'll do role playing. Mm -hmm. um, I really like that. I think that that would be something I would love to have incorporated here. <laughs> yeah, if you ever wonder whether, you know, unconscious stuff gets communicated, just ask a therapist to become a client mm. and you'll find they've got everything there. <laughs> Very nice people can be, you know, a whining, hateful, uh, irritating um, person that's a help-seeking, help-rejecting complainer, as we used to say, uh, and, and it just, it's in there. Mm. Uh, and, and, it, and when they become them, they get a chance to put you through what they've been going through <laughs> and see if you have a different way of trying to move it somewhere. Yeah, that's so very interesting. Um, 
What is okay? So maybe what is the one advice if you could you 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 very greatly in detail cover this in the book, but maybe in summary, what is the one advice that you would give supervisors? And then what is the one advice that you would give supervisees? <laughs> in the book. <laughs> uh, but what comes to mind right now is um, that for supervisors, I think you can't underestimate how vulnerable people feel when they're presenting their work, how skinless they can feel, mm. how ready to be exposed as bad, wrong, shameful, incompetent, inept, that, you know, these are very highly functioning, competent people, and that's how the supervisor tends to see them. Mm. And it's, it's not always easy to see that you could devastate these competent people if mm. you are not careful. So that's, that's the main thing that occurs to me about supervisors. With supervisees, I would say the main advice is try to get something positive out of any supervision that you're in, even if it's with a bad supervisor or somebody whose orientation you don't have respect for. Everybody's got something they can teach. At, at worst, they can teach you how not to behave as a supervisor. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah, that, yeah. I don't know if that matches what I said in the book, but that's... Yeah, that was good. That was cool. Pretty <laughs> close? Yeah. <laughs> well, good. And there's some continuity in my personality. <laughs> yeah, with the first, with the with, uh, supervisees, uh, I have this friend and she presents as very professional and straight A student, one of the most competent probably people in our cohort. And and then when you talk with her and you, and you real and she tells you, um, exactly, you know, kind of her thought process, or maybe she's self depreciating or something. It's just, uh, it's so easy to think that they see themselves the way that you see themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so I can imagine for supervisors, you, you see these people, especially maybe, you know, in grad school or a psychoanalytic institute, you have these students, and you're like, these are highly trained professionals, they're mature, and they're coming. And so it's easy to forget that they're very vulnerable. And yeah. Yeah, one of my best supervisory experiences was with Arthur Robbins, whom you mentioned earlier. Mm. When I started working with him, um, I said, he, you know, he asked me about myself, and I said, one thing you should know about me is I'm very sensitive to separation. Mm. Um, I, I'm very reactive to it. Uh, if I don't have time to process it, I sometimes will get sick and somatized. Mm. But yeah, yeah, given your history, I can understand that. And then months later, he, he told me um, that the next week would be our last supervision before his taking a six-week break for the summer. <laughs> and it was the end of the session. And of course, all my stuff got activated. I got sick. I came mm. back the next time angry and you know, coughing and sneezing and yelling at him that I told him this about me. <laughs> and he gave you a week. And to his credit, he just apologized. He said, I'm so sorry. Hmm. I, you know, I make that mistake sometimes. You don't look like a person who's very sensitive to separation. 
you look highly competent and you know highly uh, effective, and you're not clinging, and you, you don't seem to um, you know need need constant attachment or advice, or mm. you just don't seem dependent. And I just forgot, mm. and that immediately made it a lot better. I thought, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Throw away your tissues. Yeah. And furthermore, <laughs> he didn't have to, you know, defend what he'd done. Hmm. And just apologize. Yeah, and just apologize. That was another very big takeaway that I got from this book is you talking about as a supervisor not being defensive and and as a therapist that um being able to take criticism and being able to take it in a non in a non defensive way and modeling that for your for your supervisees. I thought that that was a very good point and very hard to do. Very hard to do, uh, very hard to do. Um, so you dedicated this book to your husband, Michael Garrett. And do you wanna, I've always had a fascination with dedications and books. Yeah. And I just wanted to, would you like an opportunity to talk about uh, maybe how he's influenced you or why, why you decided to dedicate this one to him? Oh, yeah. Um, first of all, uh, I go to him for essentially supervision a lot. Yeah. He is a psychiatrist analyst who has spent 35 years treating psychotic patients among mm. the urban poor with psychotherapy. He does a very interesting integration of CBT for psychosis Oh. And a kind of Kleinian object related understanding of the meanings of psychotic stuff. Mm. And he, you know, he's a, he's in a, an environment which is dominated by biological psychiatry that just wants to medicate these suffering people and manage them. And he insists on helping them. And mm. he's really good at it. He, oh. he did a wonderful book on the topic recently. His name is Michael Garrett. And I've only been married to him six years because we were both widowed before that and found each other late in life. Um, and I, I'm still just so excited that I found such a wonderful person. Um, my first marriage was good. Um, and, and then I was a, wid a widow for 10 years and I wasn't in a rush to, you know, book back up with somebody, but, um, I admire Michael enormously, and he is a really good therapist, and he and I have very different areas of skill. I, I am fascinated by working with schizophrenic patients, but I haven't done it for many years, except the, the occasional person in private practice who has had a psychotic break or who has a psychotic edge, mm. um, whereas he's been seeing, seeing hospitalized clients. Yeah. Um, he isn't as interested in working in the long term with people with severe personality pathology as I am. So mm. we're in a nice position to help each other with the patients that we're not so, so good at. Yeah. So I just felt this deep gratitude to him also just for um, falling in love with me. Oh. And, and he did that before he knew anything about my reputation in the field. Oh, really? Oh, well, that makes it so much better. <laughs> people of <laughs> my own age who were, were not trained on my books. So, huh. it, it, and my books are mostly for B1 
beginners. I'm mostly a teacher. Um, so this isn't entirely true anymore, but a, a, many people, my professional age have never heard of me. And mm. so he just heard me give a talk one night about schizoid psychology, <laughs> how much I liked it. He identifies with that kind of personality. Uh. And, um, and he was just beginning to uh, think about dating uh, more than a year after the death of his beloved first mm. wife. So I felt like I suddenly hit the jackpot. Wow, look at you. <laughs> who, wait, who asked who out? Did you ask him or did he ask you? He asked me. Well, yeah. he, he actually it was more uh, Victorian than that. He, he sent uh, an inquiry to my friend Joyce Slockauer, who had done, through a mutual friend, who had done the discussion of my paper, saying, wouldn't you know if Nancy would be interested? <laughs> and she sent me his website. And uh, I said, yeah, go for it. And, and so we eventually got an email communication, and he suggested that we meet for lunch and he suggested a greek restaurant in midtown manhattan that is my favorite restaurant in all of new york city so wow it was a sign what is that <laughs> so it was blessed from the start yeah okay uh just i just have a few last questions and this is kind of switching topics to um i was reading well, i was reading psychoanalytic diagnosis and you were talking about identification and you mentioned in the book how <clears throat> there's kind of a theory that a lot of teenagers, con the contemporary teenagers, don't really have heroes anymore to identify with. There's a lot, um, maybe less stories and there's not really uh, as many myths that people talk about now or read about. And I don't know, maybe they just don't have very many heroes in Western culture anymore and how that a la that lack of heroes to identify with is a possible link to suicide. Um, do you think that this is like a product of our times or um, how would you maybe imagine helping youth find better heroes that they can identify with? I'm not sure I framed it as not having heroes exactly. Okay. Um, but I do think in this kind of culture, uh, it's harder to find examples of who you want to be like, and especially morally who you want to be like. Mm. The consumer culture. Mm. And um, I, I think one of the things that people in the adolescent range, all through young adulthood, struggle terribly with is do I matter? And is there any way of mm. being a grown-up where you can matter, where, the, where, where you can do something valuable for your community? Uh -huh. We tend to throw amusement at young people and products at them. And we don't, we don't make it easy for them to feel like they contribute something. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that we didn't even have a word for adolescence until the 1890s. Wow. Because it, 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 it was a product of the Industrial Revolution that there began to be a space between when you matured physically and could, you know, have a child mm. 
And when your tribe, your community said that you were grown up in that community, hmm. in most preliterate cultures, you become um, capable of impregnating or becoming pregnant. And now you are a man or a woman, you go through a rite of passage. Hmm. Now you have a role in that culture. Uh-huh. But we have a longer and longer and longer limbo between physical maturation as an adult mm-hmm. and roles that feel truly like being an adult. And it's especially long for people in training in our field. <laughs> you can get into your early 40s before you feel like you know what you're doing. Mm. You're, you're, you're good at this. You have something to offer. You value what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I know I've talked about it that way. I, I think it's very hard also if you're, um, you know, one of the things about the stretching out of adolescence is that it's normal in adolescence to value yourself based on how the peer group sees you. Everybody wants to be popular. Uh-huh. If your parents are still in an extended adolescence, when they're bringing you up because of cultural stuff that's Mm. beyond their control, they're going to be worried about how you reflect on them. And they're going to be more worried about how you are seen and how they are seen as a parent Mm. than they are about what you're really like. And the child can get the message of, I have to be perfect to make you happy or you already think I'm perfect and you're going to tell off anybody who says otherwise, which mm. leaves me also feeling not known for uh-huh. who I am. And life is challenging in a culture like this. Parents are busy. I don't think they can spend as much time with their kids as you would have in a culture where you're in a kind of apprentice role to, to a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, more and more, my colleagues who treat, young children are telling me that parents bring them in wanting them medicated or wanting them to get uh, a specific diagnosis so that they can be categorized in a certain way Mm -hmm. an IEP and somebody else is supposed to fix them rather than how can I engage better with my child. So Mm -hmm. at a certain point, if that's how you've been treated, you don't feel you really matter. You feel you matter as an extension of your parents or uh, you matter that you don't give them more trouble, but do you really, can you really accomplish anything? In mm. And I suppose you're framing it as um, a lack of heroes is, is part of that, that there's a kind of ironic stance that now is modal, I think, for adolescents and young adulthood. And people are, they feel like they're dupes if they have this, this any sincerity Hmm. about what they want to accomplish. Because I think there's so much fear that, you know, you're such a small cog and such a big machine and the world is going to hell anyway. Who are you to think you could matter? Yeah. Even, even as far, I was reading uh, Carl Jung and, um, in the 1930s, he was talking about, and Viktor Frankl, mm-hmm. it's all, a lot, they all started finding that a uh, product of our times was meaninglessness. And yeah, I think that is one of the most difficult things to help anybody with. Yes. Um, 
So I, my wife, she talks a lot about like women today facing unique challenges uh, to our present era and that it can be difficult to find a good role or a role model. Um, would you say modern women should look to past women um, or to identify with or are they, you know, how did maybe how did you navigate that? Who did you kind of find to idolize yourself after or? Well, it's a really complicated story about me, <laughs> and I can't go into it in any detail um, with you because I, I mean, it, it, it involves several elements. One is that I lost my mother young. I was nine, mm. uh, but she was a very good mother. I idealized her, uh -huh. um, uh, and uh, so I idealized certain feminine qualities that are often not highly valued in this culture, caring, mm. working communally. Um, I, uh, my family moved a lot, and I was, the, the main source of continuity I had was a Girl Scout camp. Mm. And back in, this, we're talking the 1950s now, and early 60s, this was before the resurgence of feminism. It's when the only voice of authority was male. Um, you, you'd occasionally hear about a lady doctor, or you know, um, there were teachers, there were nurses. Uh, I remember in third grade, uh, we were asked to draw a picture about what we wanted to be when we grew up, and I said to the teacher, "I'm not sure what I want to be. What do you think I should draw?" And she said, "Well, you're a girl. You can be either a mother, a teacher, or a nurse." <laughs> so, I mean, that that was that was what I was up against. My, my father remarried. I, I got a lovely stepmother. I loved her very deeply and she died of cancer also uh, when I was in, in college. Mm. So I had a lot of internalization of that was unconscious that um, you know, women are, are lovely and important, but they're weak. Mm. You know, they, they, they can die at any time. Mm. So I had a kind of defensive identification with men and um, with being very ambitious and wanting to be at that table. And uh, I, I had it all rationalized that um, I, I wasn't going to have children because I, I was ambitious and you can't do everything. So, mm. forth. so I, I, I had a lot of stuff going on with me about gender and my way into psychoanalysis involved gender because mm. um, when I got interested in um, Freud, which I did in a political theory course, uh, my, my faculty advisor came to me and said, for your honors thesis, you might want to, you seem very psychological, you might want to look at the implicit political theory of Sigmund Freud and he handed me civilization and its discontent. And I, I loved it. I was fascinated by it. And then I started reading what were then popular psychoanalytic books by people like Eric Erickson, Karen Horney, uh, Rollo May, um, and especially Theodore Reich. Mm. And Theodore Reich was the first person I ever read who talked about what were then called sex differences mm. with the idea that women weren't a kind of unfortunate deviation from a male norm, <laughs> <laughs> but that, that their psychology uh, was you know, made sense and was admirable and was different from male psychology. Not too long after that, we, we got Carol Gilligan and Nancy Chodoro and Dorothy Dinnerstein and other people in the feminist movement 
that gave voice to certain kind of positive sense mm. of femininity that didn't involve weakness. Uh-huh. Um, but at the time, you know, Theodore Reich was the first person that didn't treat, regard women as the other sex. Mm. I mean, or the or as the the deficient but interesting sex. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, that was the basis of my um, deciding to call him up and meet with him. And he's the one who sent me into um, analysis at the institute he founded, which then moved me toward analytic training. So it was very much my dealing with my own gender issues. And my analysis, one of the reasons that I'm so, here I'm giving you the long answer anyway, but one of the reasons my analysis um, made me such a, a, gave me such clarity about the value of psychoanalytic work is that when I went into it, I didn't know that I was afraid to be a mother because mm. if you become a mother, you die. Mm. <laughs> I thought I was an ambitious professional person who just wasn't going to have time, even though I liked children, to do everything. Mm-hmm. And when I slowly just by free associating and having an analyst who was really well suited for me, realized how much I had this conviction that motherhood equated with dying of cancer. Um, then I could, you know, rethink that with my conscious mind and mm. decide to have children and organize my life where I could be a very involved mother and also, um, a professional, and uh, I was married to a man who was okay with managing our life so that that could be true. And I don't think I would have had kids if I hadn't gone through analysis. Mm, wow! Because that was a very well defended yeah. part of me. And so, um, however many years? So, how many years ago might that have been? Can I ask that question? Yeah, I started in I. I Interviewed with Theodore Reich in 1969, so okay. I would have been 22 at that time. Okay, so here we are, um, maybe 40 years later. I was born in 45, so I would have been 20, almost 20. I would have been 23, going on 24 then. Okay, so so about 40 years later, it's still um, my you know my wife. She's she's in training to become a clinical psychologist and then trying to plan to have children during school. Um, but then, you know, you're so busy and then it's, well, what about when we graduate? But then it's like, well, we'll be on internship or that'll be the beginning of my career. And then, so I think, um, here in like the last 50, 60 years, it's been a very unique problem. I think for women is, is, I want to have a career and a family. And so did you have anyone to go to, to uh, find out better how that might be done? Or did you just uh, through all, through your psychoanalysis and I'm sorry, the internet connection. Daniel, I, I didn't hear that whole last part. Cause you, okay. okay. Yeah. Um, where did I, where did I leave off at? You were starting to talk about what your wife faced in, in, in okay. terms of, well, you both face in yeah. terms of when can you have your children in this complicated world where all, and it's, it really is a problem that mm. 
um, the, the, the most intensive part of any professional training comes right at the point when your fertility should be directing <laughs> you. Yeah. And so my question was, did you, did you have anyone personally to go to to find out better how that might be done? Or were you just maybe, did you just go for it and you were strong enough at that point um, after psychoanalysis and everything to, you didn't really need someone else to identify with or to, does that make sense? Well, I, I, I knew a fair number of pretty strong women from Girl Scout camp. That was the place pre-feminism where you learned that women could do anything a man could do. And if, if you couldn't because you weren't strong enough, two women could do it. You know? <laughs> um, so I, I, had a, I had a few models and I certainly idealized both of my mothers and uh, I, my first mother had stopped uh, her professional career to have kids. But I knew that she had her master's degree and had taught the deaf and was looking forward to going back to that kind of work. My second mother was an artist, and okay. she kept up some of her art. So those were models. But also, I was somewhat, I mean, I was a somewhat confident child um, <laughs> who remained confident that I could put something together. Um, probably the person that I met later in life who was most similar to me was uh, Sandra Bem, the, the great gen gender theorist. She became a very close friend of mine because she and I had both, you know, we both uh, similarly married our professors back before that was forbidden you know, <laughs> and um, developed egalitarian marriages where the, the where we shared all the work, the child care and the housing, as well as the other stuff. Hmm. And I, I did have some sense that um, maybe I would be a model for future women, but I, 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 it just felt like this story had to be written by my generation, and many of us wrote it. I mean, a lot of, I mentioned Nancy Chodoro earlier. She's a person who has written a lot of this, and Carol Gilligan and many other people in the feminist movement uh, you know, talked about how, how you have to work with us. And most of my male friends are feminists, too. Mm -hmm. And you know, we're at the time, and we're trying to be supportive, even though when I went through graduate school, originally there were no women in the department. And really? Yeah. And, and people would, <laughs> back in those days, they would say the most patronizing thing to you. They would say, you know, you're pretty attractive. Where do you get off being smart, too? Wow. Or they would say to me, you have a mind like a man. Wow. Yeah, different times. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah, so my last question. Um, what, yeah, what are some maybe some specific psychological issues that women might face that men don't? Um, that might be overlooked in therapy or just under-talked about in psychology in general? Oh, wait, that's going to take some reflection before I come up with it. Um, well, one thing that comes to mind is that women have to deal with limitation hmm. earlier than men do. Hmm. Um, there's no way you can, unless you, you get severely anorexic, there's no way if you're female you can prevent yourself from menstruating, starting to get breasts. I mean, 
at this point, there are other choices. People can decide that they don't identify uh-huh. um, as a, a female. But speaking of like mainstream um, female development, either heterosexual or homosexual or bisexual, there's a there's a problem. You're more rapeable. You know, mm. you can be overpowered, uh, even if you know karate. Mm. Um, if you you, you are pregnable, it's the opposite of impregnable. <laughs> um, if you get pregnant or when you get pregnant, you lose whatever fantasies you have that you're in charge of your body because this other organism is calling all the shots. Um, if, when you're in labor, you can't control that either. <sighs> um, with, with nursing, your body just does its thing. If you're a, a fairly competent male, especially of uh, uh, some privilege, you can get well into your 40s before you run into um, certain kinds of limitation. You know, mm. I developed an illness or uh, get going bald or I didn't mm. get the promotion at the company. But I think women run into limitation much earlier and more consistently. And in some ways, I think that's that serves them well because limitation is a part of life that in a culture like this, we don't always acknowledge, you know, mm, they're yeah. still acting as if the world has unlimited resources as we destroy the world. Yeah. Um, because the idea that, yeah, you just go for whatever you want is uh, the individualistic norm. Mm. It, it is kind of killing us. Women tend to have more communal norms and they tend to be somewhat devalued. Mm. Um, I, I, when I wrote my first book, I was determined to write it in my own voice and not to try to sound like male academics that I had read. Uh-huh. Um, women are more tentative in the way they think things through. They tend to be um, to give more credit to other people. I like those aspects mm-hmm. of women. Sometimes they are problematic. Sometimes um, women won't fight to get a raise that a man would have no trouble fighting for. Uh-huh. Um, and they're still not believed sometimes when they're the object of sexual abuse. Mm. Um, and I, I, it's taken me a long time to realize how powerful women are seen from outside and how much envy there is toward our capacity, for example, to have babies. Mm. Um, and, and it's unconscious, and then it takes the form of devaluation, you know, well, I can't do that, but I can show you I'm superior in all these other ways. And it, it took me a long time to really appreciate that and not feel uh, hurt by it. Mm. When, when, when uh, I was feeling devalued by a man who, you know, on reflection, I might have thought, well, you know, maybe there's some envy there that propels that. Yeah. Um, anyway, there, it's a huge area and I'm not that up with it. And I think gender, it, it was kind of simple to talk about when I was <laughs> uh, coming of age, but yeah. now there are all kinds of, I took a survey for Division 39 that asked, uh, you know, what gender are you? And they gave you, I think, 11 choices. <laughs> oh. How do you identify? Yeah. Um, so it, it's very different from what yeah. I was coming up. And I, I, I still have to get much more educated about Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That was 
That's a good answer. <laughs> that's helpful. <laughs> I kind of, it was, you know, on the spot and that's a big question. So, um, okay. Well, thank you again so very much for this. And, um, you're welcome. Yeah. yeah I enjoyed a, this. You know? Good. Good. I'm glad. Be bad, just being asked to say what you think. <laughs>